Kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Chorus on June the 30th. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka. Today I want to talk about RMA reform. Yesterday was a big day. David Parker, the Environment Minister, put out the first draft, the exposure draft of the Natural and Built Environments Act, which is the first of a three-part package to replace the Resource Management Act. This is an unusual process, the first we've uh, done this, where effectively an exposure draft is out there and goes through a select committee process. Not the real one, but a sort of a um, first draft um, dry run. And, uh, and then there will be a proper um, bill put before the House and David Parker hopes pass before the end of this term. It um, is designed to go with a Strategic Planning Act, which he also hopes will be out there before the end of this term, and then a third leg, which is the Climate Change Adaptation Act, which does the tricky business of working out um, who's going to pay to relocate people away from uh, the sea and um, other flood zones and the likes, and who will pay for it. Um, we're all reminded of that from yesterday's storm up and down the country and, of course, those pictures of waves crashing into houses in Wellington. So, RMA reform, and it's one of the things people talk about when they talk about let's solve this housing crisis. Well, we asked David Parker about that yesterday and he was rightly cautious about saying this is the silver bullet. He points out it's going to be years before this is passed and there is a lot of change that has to happen elsewhere. Not to mention inside the council planning departments, which he described as a culture of saying no, effectively. He said some council planning departments, and I suspect he's talking here about Wellington, sorry, Wellington and Auckland, particularly Auckland, are um, bigger than some government departments. And he's right on this, that uh, the RMA is not the magic bullet and will need um, a lot more to actually achieve significant increase in housing supply anytime soon. I want to just step back a bit from this RMA process, which we'll hear about endlessly for years to come, and just ask the question, have we done all the things we need to to make sure this RMA repeal and replace will actually work? I don't think we have. There are at least three major unanswered questions, three big unresolved issues that um, haven't been dealt with and I think should be dealt with before you start the whole RMA process. Firstly, around population growth. There's no suggestion in the planning framework around the, um, the three acts replacing the RMA that the government uh, has a clear idea on how fast the, company, the country should grow and in particular, who's going to pay for it? At the moment, we have this weird situation where um, public transport and roads are effectively paid half and half between central and local government. And all the pipes and uh, footpaths and parks are paid for 100% by councils. The trouble is, when you're growing your population very fast, as we have done for much of the last 10 years, and certainly for the first five years of the 20, of the 21st century. So really for the last 20 years we've grown much faster than we have in the previous 50 years or so. Effectively, councils said, well, um, I, I don't want to pay for this growth. You're the ones who've let all these um, people in on temporary work visas 
and uh, lots of students and backpackers, but I don't have the tools to be able to pay for the infrastructure for this. And it's the government that gets all the benefits of this population growth. You get the GST receipts, you get the PAYE income tax receipts, and uh, yeah, you only get to pay for half of the public transport and roads infrastructure. You don't have to pay for the pipes and for all the other things, not to mention our half. So what we've seen effectively is that over the last 30 years, both central and local government have effectively underinvested heavily in infrastructure, particularly in relation to the population growth we've seen in the last 20 years. And that has led to what we've all seen, which is very high house prices, congestion, all sorts of stresses on public services, and um, uh, some real issues for our economy, which we haven't really dealt with. In theory, in the 2017 election, we had a bit of a debate about migration, but we didn't really, and nothing changed. Um, we had very fast migration between 2017 and the lockdown. Um, despite what Winston Peters said and what the Labour um, opposition promised about restricting migration for students and so-called low, lower-skilled temporary migrants, uh, we had huge numbers come through and that helped drive house prices up. And if anyone has any doubts about migration actually causing house prices to rise when we have restraints on supply like we do, a uh, very good piece of research out yesterday from the ANZ team of economists who have done some modelling and worked out what happens to house prices given our current supply restrictions when you have higher or lower net migration than what we had um, before COVID. And what it found is that uh, if you have a high migration track, which is about 50% higher than what we saw in the few years before lockdown, um, then you double house prices over the next five years. Even with a relatively low net uh, migration track, you see a 75% rise in house prices over the next five years, all other things being held equal. So we really haven't got on top of this issue of how much population do we want and who's going to pay for it. And that's the big question at the start of the process that you really need to resolve before you do RMA reform because the problem with the RMA is that it's become an effective tool for councils to effectively say no to the central government and to developers on behalf of their voters, most of whom are property owners, and remember the very poor turnout in council elections means that property owners call the shots in councils, and are often quite conservative and frankly didn't want all these people turning up and no one asked them. So what they've done is use the council processes and the RMA to essentially um, vote no against all this population growth. The side effect for them has been brilliant because of course their house prices have gone up and when you're making tax-free capital gains on leveraged investments in property, um, you love it when house prices go up. So it's a perfect storm. You don't have to pay for the infrastructure in the form of higher taxes or higher rates and you get a big lift in your house price which will help you run your small business which may or may not be viable without um, the ability to withdraw equity from your home. So, uh, uh, essentially, the government hasn't asked or got permission from ratepayers and property owners who vote for all this population growth. And there's no suggestion of having done that or doing it during the RMA process. I asked David Parker about this yesterday, and he basically said that um, there are various scenarios for population growth, and um, uh, that's how the planning process will think about that. 
but no suggestion of changing the uh, funding processes for that to encourage councils to get on board and try to um, increase the number of housing consents and the housing supply. And that's the other thing. I mean, we still haven't had this local government funding review, which is ongoing as well as the RMA reform. And of course, we haven't dealt with three waters, which is on, going on at the same time. And again, uh, very much involved in this process, this debate about who pays for population growth, let alone who pays for the underinvestment of the last 30 years. Um, I have a chart down the bottom of today's Dawn Chorus, which shows uh, how councils have not been investing the depreciation uh, they reported in their accounts. So the deal is normally that you, um, you write off a certain proportion of your hard assets every year in your profit and loss account, and in your capital account, your assets and your liabilities, you effectively reinvest in that infrastructure to um, keep your balance sheet where it was. But what councils have done systematically over the last 30 years is claim more in depreciation than they invest in infrastructure, effectively stealing from the future, stealing from future generations to make sure that rates don't go up too much and that uh, council debt doesn't go up too much. So I think the government should settle this funding and financing issue with the councils before um, they move ahead with RMA reform, because otherwise you risk the three new acts just being, a, being an even more brilliant way to stop development by councils and voting ratepayers who never actually wanted the population growth to start with, particularly when their own councils don't have the funding tools uh, to stop it from um, blowing out their debt and their rates. The other thing, of course, is that those ratepayers, if they want growth, and they seem to love the cheap migrants that come with it, for the cheap Ubers and the, the cheap takeaways, and the um, if they're running a business, the cheap workers. And uh, also, uh, they, they quite love the low interest rates that come with the relatively low wage growth from all these migrants. Uh, that um, they also need to think about, you know, who's going to pay for it? How do you pay for it in higher taxes or higher rates or higher debt? And uh, there's a lot of magical thinking here where property owners and small business owners who love fast migration but don't want to pay for the infrastructure will eventually um, have to make a call about whether they either want high migration and high taxes or they want low migration and low taxes. Got to make the call. Secondly, um, the RMA, of course, uh, has to consider how the Tetraliti uh, or the Waitangi principles are included in there and how iwi are consulted in not just the planning but the decision making under this new uh, resource planning framework. And that is unclear really in the way that this, these bills are set up. And in particular one example of that is the um, current debate about water which has been dragging on for years. So the background here of course is that many farmers and power generators have water rights effectively. Um, they assumed them or accidentally were granted them or have had them historically since owning land in and around those water sources. But iwi rightly are saying, hang on a minute, if no one owns the water, um, uh, how, how come I, we don't have any control or compensation for that? And um, the assumption was, of course, that unlike land where it was bought, um, water isn't owned by anyone. Well, a water allocation right is effectively an ownership right, and that hasn't been resolved, that whole issue. So how you can have an RMA reform process that is meaningful and 
doesn't just recreate the mess you've got when you haven't even dealt with the um, key question of who controls water um, is very difficult. So um, I have some real doubts about whether the RMA process will actually make it easier to get housing and solve some of these disputes in the long run because when you abstract back from the whole need for a resource management act it is a law designed to uh, moderate and to adjudicate on disputes between landowners about what rights they have to do what they want on that land uh, and of course in the air and the water uh, and when someone has essentially assumed more rights over that land than they had originally, which is what the RMA allowed a whole bunch of landowners to do. It allowed them to restrict development around their property, essentially supercharging their own land rights. Uh, that, um, that either needs to be reversed, and no one's suggesting that happens, uh, or um, you need to uh, think about a different way of managing these disputes, particularly when it's clear that the RMA hasn't worked from an environmental sense point of view. Um, we have, of course, uh, failed on the carbon emissions front, failed on the water quality front, and um, a whole bunch of other areas where the environment has been degraded. And secondly, we've failed on the um, housing affordability, housing supply front. So yes, the RMA has failed, but I'm not sure it's failed because of the legislation. I think it's failed because councils and government have refused to invest the necessary amounts in infrastructure to deal with population growth, and voters and ratepayers um, refuse to take the tough decisions to make it viable, i.e. they need to pay more rates and more taxes to fund the infrastructure underneath it. The magical thinking continues, and hopefully um, this will be addressed before the end of the RMA process, which could last several years, so there's time. Uh, elsewhere in the news today, on the COVID uh, front, um, Queensland has put 4 million people into lockdown after a couple of cases were found, including one receptionist who was in a hospital next to a COVID ward, so it appears to have gotten it um, through the hospital, and uh, unfortunately went on a, a bunch of trips to various locations uh, for holidays, potentially infecting a whole bunch of people. So. Townsville, South East Queensland, Brisbane uh, are all locked down now. Of course, all the borders have been closed off with the rest of the country. And um, there is also a debate brewing about the government's decision in Australia yesterday to allow under-40s to take the AstraZeneca vaccine. Remember, there's some very slight concerns about blood clotting with AstraZeneca. And the Australians banned under-40s from in fact, under 60s initially, from uh, getting AstraZeneca. Well, the, the government's made that political decision to open it back up again to uh, young people. But, of course, there's a bunch of doctors and GPs and medical associations and experts saying, hang on a minute, this isn't good. That, of course, uh, complicates matters when you're trying to convince people to get vaccinated when it doesn't look like the government and the grown-ups in science and medicine agree. Uh, secondly, um, the task to get to uh, uh, herd immunity looks like it's going to be tough. Some research out yesterday from Te Punaha Matatini shows that uh, we'd have to get to 97% vaccination to really keep a lid on the Delta variant because it's so freaking, so freaking infectious, which isn't great, um, particularly when you look overseas at what's happened with vaccination rates. They're essentially 
stall around the 50-55% mark. It's very difficult to get much higher than that. It's a couple of uh, groups who aren't keen on getting vaccinated overseas. Um, very young people who you know don't think they can ever get sick and um, get a lot of their news from the internet. Secondly, uh, a whole bunch of old people um, who've gone down the QAnon rabbit holes on Facebook and uh, or are Republicans and um, have lost their minds generally. And uh, and then you've got a whole bunch of people, um, migrants, English as second language, all around the world, people in low-paid jobs who've lost trust in their governments and are understandably nervous about getting vaccines. For example, in a lot of aged care facilities in America and in Britain, a lot of people have not got the vaccine. And even here, you know, there's over 1,500 workers in and around the border, not necessarily the ones you know, in the MIQ facilities, but at ports and airports, the sort of cleaners and pilots and various people working on the wharves who haven't been vaccinated yet. And uh, we can excuse that until now because we haven't had the supply, but the supplies are running out. And next Tuesday apparently is D-Day uh, when the supplies of vaccines that we have currently run out, although we are expecting apparently a big delivery next Tuesday. So um, we're running out of supplies and have one of the lowest vaccination rates in the world, um, the lowest in the OECD. So the pressure's on on vaccinations and on herd immunity. Again, reinforces my view, which those who have followed me for the last few days, I don't think that we'll really open up the economy until the second half of 2023, at the earliest. Um, when I say open up the economy, I mean open up the borders. It turns out, of course, we've managed to cope fairly well without these borders being open. Lots of exports of goods and of services. And even though a lot of business people haven't been able to travel around the world, we've still been able to sell things. And the domestic economy has switched from some parts of hospitality and tourism to um, other bits and pieces. Um, real estate being one of them. And that has uh, certainly boosted the economy. However, um, this latest series of uh, lockdowns in Australia and New Zealand and more concerns about vaccination rates overseas uh, has, you know, put a, a bit of a dampener on all this talk about, you know, a race, a, a rebounding economy that really gets uh, cracking. So um, we will uh, see what that does for interest rates. Overnight in the States, uh, we got news of quite strong consumer confidence and house prices in America rising at the fastest rate in 30 years. Uh, however, um, there is also some caution ahead of the big jobs figures on Friday night, which will determine the initial outlook for interest rates globally, remembering the US Federal Reserve and the US economy, the biggest in the world, and the determinator of interest rates around the world. Okay, that was the Dawn Chorus for today. But before we go, I wanted to um, play a discussion that I had with Michael Wood, the uh, Transport and Employment Minister yesterday, in which I asked him about what councils are saying about uh, Waka Kotahi and its grants for public transport and road maintenance. Consistently around the country, we're hearing that Waka Kotahi has reduced its planned spending on maintenance and public transport by $420 million. Because remember, this is all 50-50, 50 50% from Waka Kotahi, the central government, 50% from councils. That effectively means nearly a billion dollars worth of spending reductions that councils have had to find 
regional councils and um, city councils in their public transport and road maintenance budgets. For no good reason other than um, the government wants to keep a lid on debt, um, even though we have the lowest debt in our part of the world and for those countries with AAA credit ratings and it costs 1.7% to borrow for 10 years at the moment and the government has $40 billion sitting in cash in a reserve bank, bank account. Doesn't make sense to me uh, but um, Michael Wood defended it and I put those questions to him uh, yesterday morning. So have a listen to this, the government defending its decisions and NZTA's decisions. I think we need to be really careful about and accurate about the language there. There haven't been cuts to budgets. In fact, the budgets that Waka Kotahi have communicated to councils recently in respect of the RLTPs are significantly higher than they were in the, previ in the previous RLTP. But that's what happens every time. Effectively, the way that the process works is that councils bid for what they want. But they were told that NZTA indicated a certain level and then came back a week and a half ago with 420 million less. The way that the process works is that councils bid for what they want and in every cycle it is pretty much the case that Waka Kotahi does what it can, uh, does what it can to meet those bids but is generally unable to meet the full expectations of councils so in every three year cycle because councils always want more than what is able to be funded. That is not a new thing. But the funding levels that have actually been provided are significantly higher higher than they were three years ago. So the term cuts is simply not accurate to use in this case. It's a very so normal part of the, the process. When they said that they, they believe their budgets have been cut. I'm saying that uh, the term cuts is simply not accurate, and the figures are there in black and white that in nearly all cases councils are receiving more funding than they received three years ago. Now, all of this speaks to the fact that there is pressure on transport budgets. There are always high expectations in the regions, and partly because we're in this period of transition where we know we need to invest more in public transport, etc., walking and cycling, there are a lot of pressures in there. So we're working hard to meet those, but cut is simply not accurate on any objective so, grounds Auckland to use Council, as a term. Auckland Council used that, they said, cut to justify a two-year delay in the busway from um, uh, the Eastern Busway. Yeah, yeah. What's going? I mean, you, what, why is the government tolerating that when it's supposed to be going for carbon zero? Uh, Auckland ultimately makes these decisions about its own budget, but I do have to say that I was surprised, along with councillors that would appear, by Auckland Transport's relatively late. Uh, a view that that project would need to be delayed. I've communicated to, to Auckland Transport that that's of concern for me and I've asked Waka Kotahi to work with them to see if there are a way of bringing it forward because it is a very important project and I would note that it's a project that's enabled by the regional fuel tax. Uh, so that's something that we brought in to accelerate projects so I'm keen to see that it is brought forward as quickly as possible. And um what is the government's view on the uh, regional long-term plan that the Auckland Council put through, which estimates a 1% reduction in emissions over the next 10 years when the Climate Commission says um, there needs to be a trebling of public transport and a significant reduction in transport emissions? Reducing emissions across transport is my top priority in the sector. And I note two things in this particular 
case, the first is that for the first time in history, we actually have a transport investment plan that does start to reduce emissions. We know there is more work to be done. But I wouldn't underestimate actually what a big turnaround that is, given that every previous plan would have resulted in an increase in emissions, noting that Auckland's population is growing. So it's a big shift to effect. But the second thing that I would note is that the regional land transport plan that you're referring to is effectively about the infrastructure investment. That is not the only component of transport policy that, that reduces emissions. So if you look at that, for example, combined with the work that we've done on clean car discount, clean car standard biofuels, you start to see a far more substantial reduction in emissions playing out over the next 10 years. I understand that 1% includes the effects of the feedback scale. No, my understanding is that that is a result of the uh, capital investments that are made across that programme. So surely it's not enough to get to carbon zero, this current track. What are you going to do about those capital investments? Well, we have a very clear job as a government at the moment that we've set ourselves, which is to develop an emissions reduction plan that does get us down to the carbon budgets that the Climate Commission has proposed. Ministers have that work underway now. That will include um, uh, the uh, capital investments that we make. It will include the things that we have to do to affect mode shift. It will include consideration of all of the things that the Commission has talked to us about. And they've talked to us about things like, do you need to consider congestion charging in the mix? Uh, do you need to consider further investment in walking and cycling and public transport? Do you need to consider those questions about how you avoid emissions in terms of the way that you plan cities? So all of that will be in the mix. How much of a limit is the current debt track and the Public Finances Act requirement that you reduce total government debt? Well, you can always do more things if you have more money, but there's a broad expectation in a government position that we manage debt responsibly. It's really important to note that in the transport space, we're investing way more than we have ever invested. Uh, within the last month, there's been an additional $1.9 billion, which has been injected, for example, into the New Zealand Upgrade Programme. But there is a, a fundamental responsibility to get the balance right, and that's what we're doing. But you use the excuse keeping lid on debt to stop the Mill Road and Western Tauranga routes, which would have unlocked tens of thousands of houses. Why are you choosing low interest rates over more housing and fixing climate change? Well, there's a, a couple of points that we've just talked about in the last couple of minutes, and of course one of them is climate change. In the case of Mill Road, we are very explicit that our tripling in the cost of that was significant. But also, that the, but, also, but also that the government is signalling a, a difference in the way that we want to make investments in transport. And a project like Mill Road, which at its peak would have emitted an additional 5 million tonnes uh, per week of carbon emissions, that was also a factor in that decision. And in fact, the investments that we've continued to make there, because we haven't taken the investment away, exactly the same investment has gone into that project, are about making more carbon efficient investments into public transport, walking and cycling so, for that community. So where are you going to produce those tens of thousands of houses then if you can? can't do it out there and you haven't announced changes in the um, medium density to do it. I'll just repeat, we've retained the same investment that we originally signalled in the NZ Upgrade programme in that growth area of South Auckland and that will support growth in housing there. We're just saying that we want to support that housing growth through connect connection to mass rapid transit, good bus routes, walking and cycling, rather than building a duplicate motorway. That's not what the developers are saying. They're saying we can't sell um, these houses. We wanted to build new suburbs with three-car garages and that's what the demand is for. Well, that's not the model that we support in terms of how we reduce emissions. And if you go back to the Climate Commission report, they've told us that the best long-term way of reducing emissions is to build communities in which we don't have to emit 
in the first place. That means building communities next to the rail line, investing in the three new Drury stations, getting bus connections going into those, instead of sprawling forever and building houses with three cars in the garage. That is a change in position from this government, and that's an important part of us meeting our emission reduction goals. Reducing carbon emissions over improving housing supply. No, that's quite wrong, and it's not what I said. And in fact, explicitly, when ministers ask for advice about taking New Zealand Upgrade Program forward in the uh, South Auckland area, we said that we wanted advice on how to make the best public transport, the best transport investments, in a way that supports housing growth while reducing emissions. That's a sweet spot that we're aiming to hit. So, how are you going to replace those missing 30, 40,000 houses that now won't be built? Well, I disagree with that contention because the advice that we have is it will still have significant urban uh, growth in South Auckland. There's still $2.5 billion of investment going there through the New Zealand Upgrade Programme. But we are very clear that we're refocusing it on public transport, walking and cycling connections so that we can get that growth in a way that doesn't increase our emissions in the same way that a mini motorway would have. Councils right, yeah, well, say that they're having to cut back spending on um, cycling and buses because NZTA is cutting its funding. Well, as we said before, and I'm very happy to send you the figures. There is no cut to funding. There is increased funding going in there. And in fact, in the RLTP in Auckland that we talked about earlier, there's a record $1.5 billion for walking and cycling for that region. We know that there are always more need. We'll do our best to meet those, but we're investing at record levels. So there we have it. That's Michael Wood, the Transport Minister, talking to me yesterday. That was a very extended uh, version of the Dawn Chorus uh, on the Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey. Talk again tomorrow. Kakite anō.